0: From chapter 3, the last chapter of Zephaniah, and verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, the victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. That is one of many scriptures in the Bible. I choose that one because some people sing that. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. You might sing that. There's a scripture chorus. It will stick in your mind. But there's more than one verse we could have chosen that describes how God looks at us. Let these words sink in because we're not used to this. It says, He will exalt over you with joy. God will exalt over you with joy. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. God delighting over us. And I do not believe that we will enjoy to the fullest this Christian life until we delight in ourselves as God delights in us. So that we join with God and delight over us. We are learning to join with God and delight in God. We call it worship. But also there's another side to that that we stand with God and delight over ourselves as He does, and for the same reasons. Now, we are not used to that. I think the background that most of us comes from is that we have been taught we are worthless, we're no good, and the holier you are, the more worthless you see yourself to be. And therefore, if you're really holy, you grovel before God, preferably dressed in black, looking hideously miserable, and then you're holy. And here the Bible says that God delights over us. We have got to learn, and it might be the hardest lesson that we'll ever learn, to have a sense of worth about ourselves. To have the value in ourselves that God puts on ourselves. The moment we really know our worth before God, we are lifted out of the meaningless round of life. We become part of his... Great plan, and we know it. We're no longer on the rat race. We're no longer like little rats going around in the cage in the pet store, around and around and around but getting absolutely nowhere. Going to work to earn the money to buy the bread, to buy the house, to give us the shelter where we can eat the bread that we just earned so we can get the strength to go back to work to earn the money to buy the bread, to pay the mortgage, to, and so on, around and around and around. Meaningless. And when I discover who I am, when I know my worth before God, and I raise my head and walk with God as I really am. At that time, I know what I'm worth. And a joy, a dimension of peace enters into my life. So, how much are you worth? Well, you go back to the very beginning. God created all that is. Genesis is a very important book. Without Genesis, we've got no roots, no foundations. We usually come To know God through the New Testament. But you'll never stay in the New Testament. You've got to find your roots, And you'll discover your roots in the book of Genesis. It's very important to know where I came from. And so God tells me that in the beginning, He created the heavens and the earth. God said, let there be light. And there was light. God spoke this universe into being the vast reaches of space. When I stand before that... And when I begin just to nibble at what's out there, when I consider the billions of light years between me and those stars, and realize God said, let it be, and it was so. In fact, when it comes to the creation of the stars, it doesn't even bother to say that. It just said, and he created the stars also. It sort of attacked my case and I took handkerchiefs along as well. You know, he created the stars also. It's just almost an afterthought. In ten magnificent words in Genesis, he created all that is. Infinity of power, released by the word of God. The infinity of wisdom, so that every star is in its right place, having the right pull on the next star. We are where we are in this universe because every star and planet is just where it ought to be. And you go down into the inner universe and see the magnificent wisdom of God in every blade of grass, in every flower, everything that moves. It's magnificent. If anybody really opened their eyes to the universe, even took a jolly good look at themselves in the mirror, they could never be an atheist. Someone had to make it all. And then it comes to the fifth day and half of the next day of creation's week. And there's a pause A divine pause Everything is now Everything is The trees I could say it almost facetiously That God created around August and September At least that's when the world began Because when God created Everything was bearing fruit Uh, All the trees were laden with fruits. It was harvest time And everything is Of course to have looked at the trees You would have thought they'd been there For hundreds of years but that's how God made them. He made them with a word they were there, but they looked as if they'd been there a long time. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Don't you say it, the chicken, of course. He made a full-grown chicken and said, lay eggs. Let's get on with the job. Um, and all, no, no bears were made as cubs. They were full-grown bears. Everything looked as if it had been there for a long time. But it was there only a few hours. God had said, let it be, and it was. Now everything is ready. The trees bowed low with fruit every animal for the delight of the eye, every water running over stones that looked as if they'd been there for a billion years. Now God said, this is it. All but of it for this. And in that pause, there is counsel within the Trinity. God said, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. This is different. Between man and the last that God created, there is a grand canyon. This is someone, they were something, this is someone, they were non-person, fantastic. I can stand before the elephant for weeks and just amazed at the marvel of God's wisdom in the making of an elephant, but it's not a person. God is unbeginning person, and although the animals display his power, none of them display that he's a person. God said now we're going to make one who is just like us. A person. Make man in our image and our likeness. Every animal moves by instinct. This one will move like we do. Free choice. This is a person. And the Bible gives us details on this. It just said he made the animals out of the earth, but this one, we get the whole setup. God the great artist. He sculptors the shape of a man out of the dust of the earth. And here is his magnificent sculptor. If that's all, it would have been magnificent. But then God breathed into his sculptor. And his piece of sculptor became a living soul. And Adam blinked, opened his eyes, sat up, and looked around at his world. He was God's masterpiece. He was the most fantastic piece of art that the unbeginning artist had made. Man. What a, what a creature. He stands upon his feet. He was full grown. He's the only person ever to make footprints on the earth that was never a baby, apart from his wife. Even when, when God became flesh and lived among us, he started as a baby. But not Adam. He was made full grown. Man. If you could imagine an artist, who painted this most magnificent painting, and then breathed into it, and it walked out of the canvas, and they had fun together. That's what happened. God did his best work of art, then breathed his very self into what he did, and man walked out to have fellowship and to have fun with the one who created him. The animals. Stood in awe of this one Up to a point they still do For they realize that this one is not like them Or in some ways he is But this one knows the creator They don't This one chats away to the creator Through all the pathways of the garden And for that reason Adam couldn't find anybody in the garden To relate to Or the monkeys imitated him And sometimes Adam had to admit They were awfully much like him But when he looked into their eyes, they weren't like him. I suppose Adam's first looking glass would have been a still pool within the garden. At least I know he had come to know who he was. If we had time, I could show you that. He'd invented language to describe himself. And when he looked into the pool, he said the word Ish. Ish in Hebrew means person. It means a me. But when he looked into the eyes of animals, there was no each there. They weren't person. Dogs would come behind his heels, they'd be faithful to him, do his every desire, but there was no each in their eyes. He couldn't say there's another me, another person. <sighs> Parrots and minor birds could imitate him, but they couldn't talk. Never true to say a bird talks. They imitate your sound. But talking means I originate words. I make up words to describe what my spirit wants to say. And the bird didn't have a spirit, so they could only imitate what Adam said. Surrounded by the animal creation, but there's no ish. And so God performs the first surgery. He puts Adam to sleep under divine anesthetic. And out of Adam he takes a rib. Now there's two meanings to that Hebrew word. The first one is plain and simple, the rib. And it speaks of closing up the flesh. And God built out of the flesh and bone of Adam another human. But the word rib there in Genesis in the Hebrew also means a side. That is, I might tell you now, there's a side to me that you don't know. But that doesn't mean you say, now walk around the back and you'll see it. I mean, there, there is a spiritual side to me, a soulish side of me. There's a part of my personality you don't know. Aside to me. Now that's the meaning of the Hebrew word there. It says that God took a side of Adam. That is a part of Adam's person. A part of who he was. And built it into that rib and flesh. Before that, I don't know who Adam was. We've never seen anybody like him, for he was both male and female. God took the female side and built woman. And then he woke Adam up in the recovery room. And the first marriage took place. And God gave her away. And he presents him Eve. And in our Bibles it said that when Adam saw Eve, he called her woman. But in the Hebrew, it's much plainer. It says when he saw her, he said, Eve, another me. And then he saw she was different and he said, ah. Oh. Because in the Hebrew, when you say a male person, you say, Ish. But when it's a female person, you say, Eshah. Adam saw, she's me, but she's not me. She was another one made in the image of God. There were two persons, and they walked in the garden. They were like God. They were persons, or they were beginning persons. They had a birthday, they began, but they were persons. God was unbeginning. God was God with capital G, uncreated, these were gods with small g, created gods. But they walked in the garden and they knew who they were. Only they could hold fellowship with God. And they had awe and respect and honor for each other. For we of all, we're different, animals are for our pleasure. But we have honor one for the other, respect, for we're made in God's image together to enjoy each other and together to enjoy God. We're different. They knew they were different because they were made in the image of God. You know, you take a painting, and really it's just gloves of paint. But you sign a name at the bottom, and suddenly the painting is worth a million dollars. Right? You know what I mean? It's not so much what... If you analyze what's on the canvas, there's not much there. But it. who painted it? And that who puts himself there? I used to be great friends with an artist who is of some fame in Canada. And somebody came into his studio while I was there and said, I've I've been down to the store, she said, and I've worked out that the paints that you put on that canvas, I, I can buy them for $10. I've estimated your brushes at the most would cost $15. And so, I'll give you $25 for a painting. And he said, Madam, my paints, my brushes, $25. He bowed and said, Carol Forseth, $1,000. It depends who puts it on, puts it together, and signs his name at the bottom. You take you, and you're just a handful of dust when all is said and done. You could buy you in, in the drugstore uh, and put you together, but you'd be a mess. <laughs> You are who you are because of the artist who put you together. You are the magnificent creature you are because God signed his signature into every cell of your body. You're a masterpiece. Not because of what you'd examine yourself to be, but because of who made you. I'll only know my worth by knowing the God who was the artist that made me. If I look at myself, I'm not much. But once I know He painted me, He sculpted me, He breathed His life, I am made in His image. I am somebody. And He said to Adam and Eve that they were Lord and Lady Eve. He said, have dominion over all that is, over all creation. And they do that. These are some people, they're locked into a body, and they're locked into time and space. And yet they fellowship with eternity. They're finite beings, but they fellowship with the infinite God. Somebody. Now God says, you're just like me. So you go and look after the garden. Go and and work. That's interesting. See, apes don't work. You'll never find a monkey that built a road. Take somebody made like God to build a road. You'll never even find your dog can open its own dog food. It takes someone made in God's image to open a can you ever thought about that? God says, now go and work, sweep, sweep the leaves, and, and tend the flowers, get on with the job. For no other animal knows what that is. God said, I worked, in six days I made all that is. Now get on and work, and I'll let you rest on the seventh one too, just like me. And so man went out to celebrate that he was made like God, and he did it by working. And work had a dignity. This Lord of creation swept the roads, because no one else could. You had to be made like God to do that. And so in being the janitor of the Garden of Eden, he celebrated he was made in the image of God. God says you matter. A bird can nest anywhere it wants. Rabbits can make their warrens anywhere. Foxes can make their holes east, north, south, west. But Adam, every choice you make matters. Every choice God has eternally made matters. You are morally responsible for every choice you make. And so, Adam, I'm putting in the midst of the garden where you can't avoid it, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, a monkey can come and eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because it doesn't matter. Birds can nest in its branches. It doesn't matter because they're not made in my image. But you are made like me. And because you're so wonderful, the most wonderful thing about you is you can choose. So I'm telling you, make your choice. You're not to touch the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in making that choice, you'll become the mature persons of righteousness that I made you to be. You know the story. The wonderful person made his choice and declared himself independent from God. And in that moment, God had told him, in that day you shall surely die. And he did. He died on the inside. A hundred or so years later, his body died. The belated announcement that he'd been dead for a long time. He died on the inside. And he was separated from God. In fact, he immediately forgot who God really was. He began to think of him as someone else. And he wandered out of the Garden of Eden in a moral, spiritual darkness. And for what we're talking about tonight, he remembered... Somewhere. That he had honor and dignity. That he had worth. That he was a lovable, magnificent, beautiful creature. He remembered that. But he couldn't remember why. You see, man is the wonderful person he is because he's made in God's image. Made for fellowship with God. Take that away. And we've lost the reason for being so wonderful. Do you follow what I mean by that? Man's reason for being the fantastic person he is is his relationship to God. Take it away and you're left with a person who does believe he's honorable, dignified, worth loving but he can't remember why. He's lost his reason for being so great. I'm the Lord of creation. I know that. I'm supposed to look after the whole earth. I'm supposed to command the... I remember that but I can't remember why can't remember why. It's like a memory that you can't put your finger on, you can't recall it. It's on the tip of my tongue, uh, but you can't bring it back. It's like the dream that you had last night, and for the life of you, you can't remember it, but you know you had it. A man knows he's got honor. He's Lord of creation. He knows that he has a different relationship to that woman than he does to the dog. He knows that she too is honorable and worth respect, but he can't remember Why? So man sets out It's the story of the human race Man has got to explain himself To himself Who am I? Your dog doesn't have a nervous breakdown Asking a German shepherd Who am I? Man does though Man goes out on a pilgrimage in life I've got to find out who I am Darwin comes along Looked at himself in the mirror And said we came from apes Oh Darwin 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 Freud came along and said, You're not responsible. You're not responsible. All the decisions you make today are because of the way they treated you when you were a baby. You are not responsible. Oh, Freud. You poor blind idiot. Don't you realize we're not monkeys? We're made in God's image. That makes me responsible for every act. The attorneys in our courts today are making animals out of humans by saying he wasn't responsible for what he did. Of course he's responsible. Industry builds up and says, you're nothing. You're someone who punches a time clock. You're a nobody. You stand on the conveyor belt and you just do the same thing every minute of the day. You're a nobody. And man stands there being a nobody and he says, but I'm somebody. I know I'm somebody. There's a memory inside of me. I'm more than just a pawn in cosmic business enterprise. Society comes along and hands me a number, my social security number. This is not a person, you're a number. And I fill my billfold with credit cards, um, a number, a number, a number. I call the telephone and they answer me with a computer. I I say, who am I? You're a number, you're nothing else, you're nobody. But they call it civilization. Philosophy comes along and tells us we live in a despair world. Art comes out with modern art that says despair, despair, despair. You know what the Bible says, man professing himself to be wise, he became a fool. And the wiser man gets, the bigger idiot he makes of himself. He says, I'm wise. We came from monkeys. (laughs) We have reached the pinnacle of wisdom. You're not responsible for anything you do. And it happens over and over again. That just happens to be our, quote, civilization. It's happened before, over and over again. And now man in this world that tells him daily that he's nothing, he's nobody, he's no good, he's worthless, he's a number. Man now becomes restless. He's got to find out who he is. I've got to prove to myself I am lovable. Please, I've got to prove to myself that I'm worth something. I know I am. And we begin to turn. The first place most of us turn is to them. You know them. All the others. It becomes of supreme importance That you tell me I am worth something I've got see I know that When I knew who I was It was because someone told me I was worth something And that meant I was I forget whether Maybe it was you Or you It was them So if they Will tell me I'm good I'm, I'm great good. I'm honorable Lovable Likeable Then I can say See I told you so I knew it You follow what I mean there? Them. Do you realize that most of the young fellows and girls that I've dealt with in Brooklyn, New York City who were on drugs or into sex perversion were not there because they wanted to be. They were there because if they didn't they would laugh at them. They went into the drug scene to be accepted by others. So that they would say, you're okay, you're in the in crowd. How many playboys across the country have a girl in every town? Not because there's some sex thing, but because they want someone to say, you're worth liking, you're lovable. Do you follow what I mean? The desire to tell myself, you were right, you're likable, you've got honor and dignity. See, they say so, you're in, you're in, you're in. Accept it. And then we ask the question, do I come from the right side of the tracks? Did I go to the right school? Was I educated in the right place? Do I have the right color? Do I have the right name? Do I come from the right background? Do you ever ask those questions? Maybe you haven't asked them exactly because you're so sure you're okay because you live on the right side of the tracks and you got the right color. Ah, but you're in the same problem, you see. It's what they think. It's what they think. Do you remember Saul at Tarsus? In Philippians 3, he tells us where he got his value and sense of worth. He said, now come along. I was educated in Jerusalem. Under Gamaliel, no less. An Israelite, of course. A Hebrew of the Hebrews. A Pharisee of the Pharisees. I had it all right. I was on the in crowd. I... And he says, I today count that as trash. But he said, there was a day when that's where my sense of worth came from. I could relax and said, see, I knew it. I'm lovable. Look at how I was educated. Look at my house. Look at my patron. I mean, I must be worth something. Look what they think of me. We push ourselves into positions we hate so that they will think we're okay. And worse than that, we'll push our children into things they hate so that they will think we're good. Do you remember Salome? Mrs. Zebedee, you might remember. Her two boys, Jamie and Johnny Do you remember that? I mean They had enough trouble In the twelve disciples Without her coming along Those twelve men Argued and Feuded their way Through the three years Of Jesus' ministry Everyone trying to Outdo the other To get number one position And then Salome turns up And she says Lord I just Just a little favor I want my Jamie on one side of you and Johnny on the other when you come into your kingdom. Vice President, Minister of Defense maybe, you know, just... Do you remember it Well, more or less, it's in the New Testament. The idea is there. She came and says, Lord, let one sit on the right hand, one on the left when you come into your kingdom. I mean, they didn't need that. They'd been arguing about that anyway without her turning up. Why did she turn up all the way from Galilee to ask Jesus that? Do you think she really cared about James and John? She wanted them on his right hand and left hand So she could go back to Capernaum And say, you know my James and John (laughs) I must have done something right, I suppose (laughs) How many want their children to be a lawyer, a doctor So that they can say, he's my boy So that they will think I'm in They will think I'm right Think about it How much time do we fantasy of being someone else Dream about seeing someone else We live in someone else's life Cause we think ours is so worthless and we feel if only we could be like that and we dream of being like that or we name drop or price drop can't just wear a coat you have to tell someone how much it costs so that they'll think he must be good He can afford that some of you are looking kind of strange at me now you know name dropping is the same thing see if someone is really famous see they're, they're likable they've got dignity, honor if only I can convince people I'm sort of with them then a bit of their honor and dignity will rub off and people think he must be great, honorable, lovable. If he likes him. I remember when I first faced up to this, you know, I wasn't known by anybody. In fact, some of my members wondered who I was. And here, out of the blue, I got an invitation to speak at a convention. I know anyone ever asked me... I, I took the offering at a convention, I thought I'd really made it. But to speak at a convention... And when the advertising came, because of uh, sure so I accepted it. When the advertising for the convention came, here were the speakers. And number one speaker was David Duplessis. You know who I mean by that, don't you? And there underneath, Malcolm Smith. I was on the same bill as David Duplessis. Well, when I got to the convention, I found out that my scheduled spot for speaking was the pre-breakfast, pre-dawn prayer (laughs) meeting. David spoke at night to thousands of people in the vast arena. I had the kitchen at the church building where the meetings were held. But for all that, it was what? When I got back to my church, I found myself saying, when I was with David the other week, and I had to look in the mirror and ask myself, what was I doing trying to put it over that I had been an associate of David DuPlessis when we hadn't even met. The thing was too big. That's when I began to make this sermon, and that was many years ago. But I began to realize I was looking to David DuPlessis as a sense of value, and worth. I must be worth something if I can convince people. But saying do you relate to what I'm saying? You know? Of course, there's a flip side to it. If, if nobody likes you at all and everything goes wrong, well, at least you can become a whining, self-pitying wretch. And then, you know, at least, you know, like me. Pity me, if nothing else, pity me. And how much complaint and misery is in the world today because people are seeking, if that's it. I have met many people who are sick and if God ever healed them, they wouldn't know what to do. That's why Jesus said to one person, will thou be made whole? you really want it? You wouldn't be an object of pity then. You'd have to find your worth all over again. Up until now, you've been saying, I'm, I'm worth loving. Look at how helpless I am. Look what a wretched situation. I mean, I must be worth loving. But if God ever healed you, you have to turn around and find a new set of worth. Think about that. This is where gossip and rumor comes from. Slander. See, if you put someone down and tell on someone, the implication is, oh, I would never do that. So as long as I keep them down and keep the gossip flowing, it always keeps me up in the eyes of the people. Of course, if this is where we're at, if someone puts us down, we go to pieces. You say, well, I'm just overly sensitive. I get hurt. You're not overly sensitive. You just rely on the worth other people give you more than most people, that's all. So when they put you down, then your source of dignity and honor and worth is gone. I'm left helpless and I cover but I'm sensitive. No, you're not. You just depended on them more than most. Of course, the final main drop is God. If I can get the reputation of being well known and liked by God. Well, then I've made it. I've dropped the final, ultimate name. Talk about David DuPlessis. I mean, I've got it made. God. Do you remember Simon of Samaria? He watched as Peter and John laid hands on people and something happened. And he took everything he had and he offered money to Peter and says, give me this gift also. And if you read the whole chapter, it's very obvious why. Because before he was born again, he'd been known, well known, in the occult. Once he was born again, he lost that. Now, he said, I've got to get back a sense of what, before I knew I was somebody great, could work magic. Now, if only I can buy power with God. I, I want to be very careful here, because I do believe in the power of God today. But there are certain meetings I go in that I'm scared. We are drifting so close to the occult. I see people lining up to get hands laid on them, so they sort of fall over and come out with gifts of the Spirit. I have to ask, why? Maybe I feel that if I could lay hands on the sick and they were healed, then people would really think I'm somebody. Maybe if I could give a prophecy or a tongue or an interpretation, well I've got it made now, everybody's going to look to me in the prayer group as, you know, he's, he's somebody with God. Now, please don't misunderstand that I believe in the power of God and the gifts of the Spirit. But i better know who I am, or I can go to your head. Ananias and Sapphira. You remember then? They watched as Barnabas went down. Oh, dear old Barnabas, if you studied the act, I don't think it even crossed his head that he gave everything. He just gave it, that's all. Word got around quickly. Barnabas gave everything. Barnabas gave everything. Barnabas gave everything. What a man, Barnabas. Oh, what a man, God. And I went home after work and said, Sapphire, we're selling everything. Put three quarters of it in our Swiss bank account. The rest goes to Peter. <laughs> and then took it to Peter and said, This is all we have. And you remember what happened to them? Why did they do that? Why stand up and say, I give this hundred dollars? Maybe people will think I'm somebody if I give my money to God. That's why Jesus said, Don't let your right hand know what your left is doing. Or you might be looking to what you're giving to God as a source of your value. I I faced this early in my ministry. See, I don't have any education. I I don't even have a high school diploma. Everything I know, I learned myself. And, as I said before, they wouldn't ordain me for a long time because I wouldn't toe the line on what they said I had to believe. And I remember I I, I cringed. I really mean it. I would go to speak at a church and there would be all the other speakers that they'd had, Reverend so-and-so, D.D., T.H.D., all the way down. And it came to me, stuck in the middle, Malcolm Smith. There was nothing for or after. You know? <laughs> Just me and I, I, and I ached for the day When they would ordain me So they'd put a clerical collar on me And I could relax Now people will know I've got authority Look at that and I had to face up to all of this Where's our worth coming from? Where's our sense of value? You know, all of those things That you cling to For a sense of worth and meaning and dignity You get bored with them You need them so badly you can't love them. If I need your approval to make me feel good, I can never love you. I need you too badly. I never enjoyed the ministry. Well, I needed it to prove I was a man of God. I needed it too badly. Who could have joined? You need that car to prove to people. You haven't enjoyed it yet, have you? It matters too much. Into that restless, miserable, bored world, there comes the good news. And the good news begins, God loves me. It's so simple to 99% of us here, but that's the biggest news that you could ever hear in the whole world. God loves me. He created me, and he loves me, and his love for me didn't stop when man fell. He loves me. He accepts me. He likes me. And so much so, Jesus said words like, What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? What was he saying? You are of such worth to God. The love of God has put worth upon you The one whole world is equivalent to one human being. You're worth something. God loves you. How many times did Jesus say things like, of how much more value is a man than a sheep? Or again, he said, "Are not two sparrows sold for a cent, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but the very hairs of your head are numbered. He said, God cares for sheep. God cares for little sparrows. But when it comes to you, you magnificent people, fallen, yes, your whole person's blitzed by sin, but you're still worth a universe, just one of you. And if God cares for sheep, how much more you? The Pharisees came by and said, sinners, unless you shape up, God doesn't like you. You're a sinner. Jesus said, hold it. You're lost alright. You're in bad shape. But let me tell you a story about a man who had a hundred sheep. One of them got lost. He left the nineteen nine to find one sheep that was lost. Because you see, sheep are valuable. I've heard many sermons on that. And it always tends to be like, you know, why did the shepherd go after the one sheep that was lost? Well, because the poor little sheep was bleating. Poor little sheep all lost out there alone on the hillside. Come on. Why did the shepherd go? Because his money was wrapped up in the sheep, that's why. That sheep was of great value to the shepherd. That's why he went after it. Jesus said, God comes after you. Yes, you're lost, but valuably lost. So that God himself has come to find you. He said a woman had ten coins of extreme value. One of them rolled away and was lost. She turned the whole house out. Found the one coin that was lost. Called in the neighbors rejoiced. I found it. He got the message. He said you're lost. You're in the dirt. You're in the darkness. You've rolled away. God will turn the universe inside out to find you. You're valuable. A son goes away. Spends all that he has. Ends up as a slave in a hog pen but he said he only had to turn his eyes and when he was on the horizon a great way off the father ran, fell on his neck, kissed him, restored him, made him everything he was He said, you are valuable you are as valuable as a lost son as a lost precious coin as a sheep that the money has his the farmer has his money tied up in God loves you not because you are bleating pitifully not because you are making the right sounds Godward. I'd be very frightened if that was the case, because if I stopped making the bleaching, I'd wonder if God loves me anymore. God doesn't come because I am pitiable. God comes to me because He is mercy. Do you get that? God doesn't love me because I'm lovable. He loves me because He is love. He made me. He loves me. And nothing will move that. I don't have to earn His love. I don't have to become lovable. I don't have to do the right things. He loves me. That's the beginning of the Gospel. I don't have to turn to you and say, accept me. I turn God and say, he loves me. the beginning of the good news. And so much, Paul said, he loved me and gave himself for me. It's true to say that God so loved the world, but it must be true also, he loved me. For God loves us with infinite love, and therefore infinite love loves me as if I were the only one. And he not only died, but he ascended and poured out the Holy Spirit. And as that Holy Spirit was given, He came into us. And we became a unity with God. Our sins wiped out by the blood of Christ. And now, the Holy Spirit causing us to be a unity with God. You know, I've suddenly found my reason of dignity. Two times over. Not only that God created me, but God loves me. And maybe three times over, for not only loving me, The dying for me, rising for me, ascending for me And now bringing me into unity with himself I have found my source of worth I have found my reason, the value I know I am loved, I know I am liked The Bible calls us the covenant friends of God You look for dignity The friends of God Clothed with the glory of God himself he's placed himself within us and he is love he is wisdom he is all that we call the beautiful ninefold fruit of the spirit and he's there I mean do you really appreciate this Have you thought about it Because I got saved you got saved do you realize what you just said taken out of darkness put into light taken out of roaming wandering in ignorance and placed into Fellowship with the divine. Brought into unity with God. Unbelievable. We stand before each other with a new dignity. Paul put it beautifully. He said, now in Christ, during this living, dynamic union with Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. I don't have to ask, are you Jewish? Or are you Gentile? Because we've found something that's bigger than Jewishness and bigger than Gentileness and bigger than Norwegianness or Russianness or Englishness. Because we're one in Christ. Suddenly, it doesn't matter what color I am, what my nationality, which side of the tracks. It doesn't matter Jew or Gentile. I'm a new person in Christ. In Christ, he says, rich or poor, bond or free, you're not acceptable because you've got more money, nor are you acceptable because you're so poor. We'd better pity you. Suddenly, it doesn't matter. We've found our dignity. We're in union with Christ. We've found a source of our value. So you're a slave and I'm free, I'm the master, you do as I say, and before I felt I had value because I was the master. You felt you had value because you're a minority group, suddenly so it doesn't matter anymore. Master and slave are in Christ, it's the new dignity, it's the new honor. Male or female, suddenly woman's lip goes out of the window, women don't have to fight and fight and fight to prove we're better and bigger. Suddenly. Male takes his place. Equal to female, but in different roles, and both in the dignity that Christ gives. A new community has come upon earth in Christ. They know they're worth something. They know that they're valued by God himself, and they know that that value has been expressed in the spirit of Christ being placed in them. And I walk out into my new life, and I've got to learn now To put that into practice Before God It begins I no longer have to ask Will God like me today? Have you been through that scene? Did I read my Bible long enough? Did, did, I, did I pray long enough? Maybe And horrors if you oversleep Oh, forget it You had to go to work Without reading your Bible And praying You've had it today Forget it God couldn't like a person. Suddenly I found God delights in me. He, He took the initiative. He loved me. He placed me in Christ. He brought me into the Spirit. He's chosen to delight in me because of who He is. He called me a sheep. He called me a coin. He welcomed me as a son. And so in Isaiah 62, prophesying of you and I, He said, you will be called, my delight is in her. For the Lord delights over you as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride. Think about that. Or again, he says, I will rejoice over them to do them good. Isaiah 65 says, I will rejoice and be glad in my people. There will be no longer heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. God says, you're my delight. Do you feel and know that? You wake up in the morning knowing that whatever this day holds, you are the delight of God. Our text, Zephaniah 3.17, in the Amplified Bible, says this, He will rejoice over you with joy. He will rest in silent satisfaction. And in His love, He will be silent and make no mention of past sins or even recall them. He will exalt over you with sin. God says, I won't even think about it. The blood of Christ is cleansed from sin. You're my son. You're in the dignity of the Holy Spirit. I turn to you and I know now I don't have to compromise so you're like me. I know if God has set his love on me, I don't have to compromise to get your acceptance. Nor do I need to put you down and gossip and slander you so that people think I'm good. I'm free from that. God loves me. Do you see that? In fact, no one can put me down anymore. I live beyond humiliation. I mean, if Christ has died for you, if God has placed his spirit in you, what does it matter what people think? I found the ultimate acceptance, the love of God in Christ. I remember very vividly when I saw this, and suddenly it didn't matter that I had no education. I mean, it didn't matter. I was loved of God, his spirit, it didn't matter. I was on a new sense of values and acceptances. And I remember only a few months ago, I was invited to Princeton Seminary. Have you ever heard of that place, Princeton Seminary? And uh, I was invited to address the student body on the Holy Spirit and His gifts. And um, there was a the whole student body there. And uh, a the fellow got up to it and he turned to me. He said, What's your title? And I said, Malcolm. <laughs> okay. <laughs> He still called me doctor. He couldn't live with a man who wasn't a doctor. But I realized how free I was. My acceptance is from God. I was... I was at a a football game in England. That's not the rough stuff you play over here. You call it soccer I think. But um... And I was watching the... I was a friend of the owner of the club. And the team was playing brilliantly. But the people were being mean. They were hissing, they were booing, they were throwing things onto the field. But they kept on playing and playing. As if nothing was happening. And I turned to the owner and I said, how can they play like this? When they're being booed and hissed at. He said, come to the clubhouse on Monday morning and I'll show you why they're playing like this. And I went to the clubhouse and there were the owners. And the coaches. And the team. And we sat down. And a movie began to run It was the movie of the Saturday afternoon game And I realized that team on Saturday afternoon Hadn't been playing to the cheers or the boos of the crowd They'd been playing to the Monday morning crowd You follow what I'm saying? And when I know that all my value comes from God I play the game of life unto him So you boo me and you hiss me And you throw nasty things at me I'm human enough to feel it but the game is played to God. I'm playing to a different audience. I'm a person who lives in the love of God. I know where my acceptance is. And if you don't like me and if you throw something at me you play on because I know where my acceptance is. You, You really get the picture? could revolutionize your life if it did. I'm suddenly free to walk out there and be me Unto God. And I can turn now and honor other people. They don't know who they are. They're still in their game, freaking it out to prove. And I know sir. I know. Do you remember when Matthew gave his testimony? When all the other writers of the Gospel spoke of Matthew's conversion, they just said, Jesus called him. But when Matthew wrote about it in his Gospel, he said something different. He said, Jesus saw a man called Matthew. Nobody in Israel would call Matthew a man. He was a tax collector. They called him a dog. They at him. Orthodox Jews would wash their clothes if they touched him in the marketplace. They hated him. He was less than human, a dog. And when Jesus looked at him, Matthew came alive. And when years afterward he wrote his testimony in the Gospel of Matthew, he said, Jesus saw a man first never looked at me like a man when he said follow me I thought follow me straight away I know who they are even if they don't I know that heap of humanity a drunk a drug addict a person who screams half the night in your next door house and you say they're not human you can look at them and know they were created in the image of God blitzed yes and now in ignorance and they don't know who they are but you know who they are and it was because Jesus treated people knowing who they were even if they didn't. He drew them to himself. On the cross. you remember what he drew with? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. They're acting like animals. Jesus would not go down to their level. And answer back. He just said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Or as Paul said, if they only knew they were crucifying the Lord of glory. They didn't know it. I was driving through Manhattan the other day and somebody suddenly walked right out in front of my car. I slammed on the brakes and I put down my window to tell them to be careful and I suddenly saw they were blind and I bit my tongue. It made a difference when I realized they didn't know what they were doing. And when you know who you are, it helps a lot to know who they are and what they're doing. For you know that one person, that is acting like they are in your office. If only they knew it, they're worth more than the universe. They were so loved by God he died for them, and they don't know it, But it puts you in the driver's seat. You're suddenly free to be wrong. Oh, that's a marvellous release. Really? I'm free to be wrong. You don't, (laughs) some of you are really weird at me now, but you are. Do you realize that when God loved you, he knew then the worst thing you would ever do and loved you just the same? The worst thing you've ever done was a shock to you, but it wasn't to God. He knew you would do that and he loved you anyway. That means that when I'm wrong, I don't have to go and hide in a corner or clothe myself with fig trees and hope God doesn't see me. I come right out and say, God, I blew it. But I know your love hasn't changed a bit and I receive of that love and go on my way. And if I make a mistake in front of you, it suddenly doesn't matter. Before it would have mattered in awful life. Because if I made a mistake in front of you, you wouldn't have thought much of me. Now, now I'm free to try and fail, so I failed. I'm free to be free. Because I'm not trying to make you love me. I'm not trying to make you think he must be really something. I'm free to be me, free to fail. Because I know God's the only one who matters. And he will forgive me if I fail. So I can go on my way with you. You catch that? So there it is. You are a beautiful person. In creation and in Christ. People who come to work for me in my office, I make them go home. Look in the mirror. I give them this sermon first, of course. And I say, go home, look in the mirror, and say, in Jesus Christ, I am a beautiful, wonderful person. They say, sure. Go home and look in the mirror. Say, in Jesus Christ. I've had some girls in that office that it takes them six weeks to be able to do that. Honestly. Because we suddenly realize what we've been taught. We're worms, we're wretches, we're worthless. We live on other people's estimation. And to be able to look myself in the eye before God and say I'm a beautiful, wonderful person in Christ. Go home and do it. You go home and look in the mirror. And if your wife isn't here tonight, she'll think you've gone mad. But do it anyway. Go look in the mirror and say in Christ I'm a beautiful, wonderful person. And walk out tomorrow to celebrate your beauty in Christ. To be free as you really are in Him. And you'll discover that as you delight in yourself as God does, from the same reasons that God does, that your walk with with God will take on a new dimension. Amen.